Welcome to Solidarity Socialism from Below podcast. I'm your host, Luke Pretz. In each episode, we take the time to talk with socialists in the U.S. and abroad about the local struggles they're involved with, the lessons they've learned. Joining me today from Seattle are Jade and Megan, two members of Seattle DSA. Jade is a member of the National Afro-Socialist and Socialists of Color Caucus, commonly referred to as the Afro-Soc Caucus, and is also co-chair of Seattle DSA's Anti-Racist Co-Conspirators Caucus frequently referred to as ARC. Megan is co-chair of Seattle DSA Council District 3 coach and co-chair of the Seattle Afro-Soc Caucus. Today we'll be talking about their work with the Afro-Socialist and Socialist of Color Caucus, Anti-Racist Co-Conspirators Caucus, what they've been up to, their approach to anti-racist organizing, and how socialists can, evolve, can avoid the pitfalls of class reductionism. Jade, Megan, welcome to Socialism from Below. I'm glad to have you on the show. It's always nice to catch up with comrades from years ago like Megan and to meet new comrades like Jade. So to get things kicked off, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the Anti-Racist Co-Conspirators Caucus is and maybe a little bit about how it relates to the Afro-Sac Caucus. Yeah, thank you so much, Luke, for that introduction. Um, so ARC was birthed out of the Afrosoc Caucus. It was uh, specifically made from a situation that happened back in December of 2020. In DSA, Afrosoc has uh, proposed a resolution to make a Black Reparations Fund for Black organizers in, in DSA. And uh, while the bill did pass and did make a fund for Black organizers, um, it was not without great debate throughout the whole chapter, and it was this debate that kind of formed a coalition of allies that uh, were supporting the Afrosoc members who put the bill together, and they were non-BIPOC comrades who saw the debates and wanted to stand in solidarity with Afrosoc and those who wrote the bill. Uh, it kind of led into some debates. The debates consisted of uh, class reductionism, and uh, there was just a lot of uh, debate on, um, you know, if we should be getting these funds from DSA members, Seattle DSA members, to specifically a fund for Black reparations. And so it was these uh, allies that uh, decided we want to do something more, and Afrosoc was on board with that. And so they basically said we should form some kind of allyship that's more than allyship, which is why co-conspirator came about. And so with that, they decided to make an anti-racist caucus, which is anti-racist co-conspirators now. And it's different from just allyship because to be a co-conspirator, it is a uh, lifelong thing to be anti-racist. And it is a practice that everyone can participate in, even... Uh, BIPOC people because there's still an internalized racism that a lot of BIPOC people have. Um, so ARC does consist of BIPOC and white comrades of all sorts throughout DSA. It is only for DSA members, um, whereas Afrosoc is more any BIPOC person can join, um, even without being a DSA member. Um, but yeah, uh, ARC is definitely more uh, specific about their membership. And so that's kind of how it was formed, and just logistically, the leadership would consist of two elected members from Afrosoc, so BIPOC people, for the co-chairs on the BIPOC side, and then two elected people within ARC in general, um, and they could be BIPOC or they could be non, um, and so that's how the 
the leadership works for ARC. Thanks. I have I have a couple questions. Um, the first one is just a little bit more about the the background of this. It sounds like the the Black Reparations Fund that you're talking about that Seattle wanted to put into place and and it passed. Could you? I've I've had comrades talk to me about this a little bit, and I've talked a little bit about it with them. But I feel like if you're outside of Seattle, the the information as to what it is gets more and more diffuse uh, the further and further away you get from the source. So maybe you and Megan could fill us in as to what exactly uh, the Black Reparations Fund is and what reparations means for Seattle DSA. Yeah, so um, the reparations fund was basically, it's a fund that is a percentage of the Seattle DSA funds that come from membership dues, donations, all of that. It's a percentage of that that is set aside for Black organizers and the people who apply for this fund don't have to be a part of APRASOC. They could be a part of just DSA in general. Um, and it's any uh, it's any black organizer that needs um, basically it's kind of like a solidarity fund a little bit where uh, it's sort of for whatever you need it for. It could be for if you're low on rent. It could be for if you need groceries. It could be for organizing purposes, gas money, like transportation, like all of that kind of stuff. But it's just a separate fund for black organizers specifically. Um, and they do have to, you know, uh, apply for it. But uh, for the most part, it's sort of free reign. If I think it's, uh, I think I said about 30% of the, of the funds from Seattle DSA was going to be the amount. Uh, might have, it might be different now, but um, yeah, it's whatever, how, many, how much money that somebody wants to ask for in this fund and they're a black organizer, they can get it as long as it doesn't exceed the fund itself. But this is something that is on a yearly basis and yeah, this was all written out in the resolution that I actually was not an uh, author of, but this is all written out in that solution, a resolution that was back in December. Uh, Megan, do you have anything you'd like to yeah, add? Yeah, I think that the the kind of philosophy behind the Black Reparations Fund um, in Seattle specifically, where there's just a large um, white population, and also we have really uh, high rent disparities, income disparities. And so coming from at that, in terms of how we're organizing our time as organizers and you know what that time looks like in terms of how, how much you can dedicate to DSA, how much you have to dedicate to survival. Um, the Black Reparations Fund is just an integral part of um, ensuring that we are taking practices that may not exist as they're, they're not being practiced in the United States, but it's something that we can take on in a smaller role um, in our spaces and choose to um, build that out ourselves within the organization. So would it be kind of fair to characterize it in this way? One, black people in the U.S. Like face a, a very particular sort of oppression, not just class-based, but also along racial lines. It's happened for centuries. And so this fund is prioritizing black organizers because historically they've, like black people in America have been incredibly, disadvantaged. to say disadvantaged uh, would be short, I guess, uh, they've been disappropriated of, of, of their livelihoods in Africa when they were brought here as slaves. And, you know, since the end of slavery have been systematically oppressed and, and dispossessed. Uh, and so that's the rationale behind it. But what's interesting to me is that this is directed for black organizers. And in a way, this kind of helps make it possible for black organizers to do the work of organizing. 
if you don't have your landlord breathing down your neck. If you know you have, you could get into the Solidarity Fund for $100 if you needed it in a pinch. It takes the pressure off, and it makes it possible for you to like not have to work extra jobs or be stressed, and therefore, because you're so stressed, have to step back because you don't feel like you can take on responsibilities as an organizer. And I think that's a really interesting approach to this. It's something, it's, you know, would you call this like a form of mutual aid in a way? Yeah, uh, mutual aid would be a good term. Um, We don't want to use the term charity or anything like that. Um, That's some language that they've specifically tried to not put in the resolution when they first wrote it. And even to this day, we don't like to use that language. So yeah, mutual aid would be the best way to describe it. Yeah, And and it makes sense in that way. And it's like a very politicized sort of mutual aid too. We're supporting our community, but we're supporting our community in efforts to liberate itself. And I think that's, for me, one of the most important parts of the mutual aid project. It has to be political. And, and it, I think, personally, if it's going to be effective as mutual aid, it should go beyond propaganda. It should actively be building up the sort of resources and capacities of a community. So I guess since we're on this topic, I, when do, if you don't mind, we could talk about it a little bit more. And could you fill us in and on some of the debate that surrounded this resolution that you guys passed? Yeah, I could just say one one particular argument that someone made was, well, so first of all, to be a part of DSA, you know, with membership fees and all of that, everyone pays a membership fee to be in DSA. And uh, some of the fund would be coming out of those fees, essentially, or at least that's some of the money that is made up of the, all of DSA's money. And so the arguments were that, well, it shouldn't matter. I mean, some people were saying, why should we take money out of white working class people? Like when we're also in the same sort of financial turmoil or we're all trying to, I guess, exist and survive under this capitalist society. Um, so why should working class people be be giving their, or like having their money, uh, you know, appropriated to black folks um, when we're all in the same battle? That's kind of the main argument that I heard. And how did, I guess, how did the supporters of this resolution respond? I'd be interested in the response to this, because this is something that I feel like gets brought up an inordinate amount of times in DSA is this, well, why do we, why do we have to talk about race or why do we have to make this a, a racialized clash issue rather than uh, a universal demand that appeals to universal or colorblind sort of universal demand that appeals to everyone within the working class. How did, you, how did you all respond to this criticism? Well, I think the main thing too is like, I think the main response to, especially the black organizers to that was just like, well, look around and see how many black people are there in DSA. Like how much money is it gonna be? Like, like why do you think um, there isn't that many black organizers here? Like look up the, looking at the actual demographic of Seattle DSA and seeing how overwhelmingly white that it is. It's just like, and 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 here they and here we are, you know, saying that we are an, like anti-racist. It's just like that's kind of what the response was. Was like, well, why do you think that we don't have that many black people in DSA in general, and we are black working class as well? So, yeah, that was kind of the response there. But if you have anything else to add, Megan, 
Yeah, I think just in terms of the two groups, AfroSoc and then ARC, which was created in response to that, I think um, there's been a really big focus on political education and integrating an understanding of um, not only Black radicalism and like the Black radical tradition, but just expanding our minds beyond, you know, class reductionism and finding that, that, that point of politicization and taking it and holding that up really hard. So I, ARC has put on a lot of political education or is in the process of doing a lot of political education work, not only um, in the hopes of um, creating like teach-ins for the greater chapter, but also just doing that work inside of our own chapters. And so AfroSoc has also um, been working on a decolonization teach-in. And so I feel like that's just building the, the, I would say, the foundation for getting into dialogue. Because I feel like that is something that um, has been challenging um, since the passage of this resolution. Yeah. And maybe, Megan, could you talk a little bit about the relationship of AfroSoc to ARC? How do these two things work together? Because it sounds like they work very closely together, but it also sounds like they're somewhat autonomous from one another. I would say there's a, there's a, a lot of intention in calling them parallel caucuses because um, we're aligned in our goals, but how we get there, the work that needs to be done in those spaces are very different. Um, especially considering AfroSoc is BIPOC only and ARC, you have uh, a mix, uh, a group of folks who are at different levels of their education, different levels, uh, different parts of their journey um, to anti-racism. And so I think that there's still to a lot to be, um, to be grown as far as like AfroSoc in relation to ARC, but there's certainly two autonomous groups with similar aims and a lot of overlap in our membership. Yeah, and to add to that, yeah, basically ARC kind of follows after AfroSoc. So if AfroSoc leaders or just AfroSoc in general want ARC to prioritize certain things, then we'll go ahead and do that. Um, we definitely have our own like curriculum and like set of things that we want to do. But at the end of the day, if AfroSoc wants us to prioritize, let's say, like supporting a BIPOC candidate that's running for local office, then we'll go and do that because that's obviously more important. So that's kind of how we work together in that. I think this is really interesting, uh, this sort of parallel caucus structure that you all have developed in Seattle, because on, on the one hand, it kind of recognizes that there is two different needs that both caucuses need to fill for one another internally, right? Especially if it's like an arc where it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a lot of kind of political education going on about one recognizing what white supremacy is and and how you know socialists fit into that and kind of how also you know interestingly when I was going through your materials you shared like the values and norms document and the um, accountability pledge which I thought really encapsulated like this sort of work that you were doing in this really interesting way Maybe, Jade, you could tell us a little bit about these documents. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, we are still new, so it's still a work in progress. It's a living document. Um, But yeah, we basically, at least with the accountability pledge, we wanted to follow a model of uh, low barrier to entry, but high accountability and conduct, um, which took from the teachings of Adrian Marie Brown, uh, which we read a lot and ARC. We wanted to have some kind of accountability for people to join the space because we want everyone to be welcome at all stages of their anti-racist work, whether they're new to it or whether they've been doing it. 
um, or anything like that. And the pledge is signed by all members, so not just white folks, but also BIPOC people so that we can have that accountability in our space. But we do try to, uh, at least for the values and norms, we do try to have a restorative sort of model and like conduct. We're all abolitionists as well, um, being in an anti-racist space. Um, so we all try to follow a more restorative and transformative model of of just running our group and everything. Um, we definitely try to do, we try to prioritize the, you know, BIPOC voices. Um, when we have meetings and all of that, uh, we prioritize that if people wanted to speak um, on in Zoom. We make sure that whoever's uh, least represented goes first for BIPOC or if they're a woman, uh, a white woman, as opposed to a white man talking, we'll prioritize the woman. Um, so we try to have that progressive order of, of speaking. Um, and then we also try to have a call-in culture as opposed to a call-out because in this space, obviously, there's so many things that could be said that people don't realize is problematic or if they're just genuinely curious. And so we think that having a more just approach for a call-in culture is better and it is proven to be better. We have more trust building that way amongst all folks. And and yeah, and it kind of lets, especially like BIPOC people know that before coming into space, this is what we're going to be talking about. And so, so we just, you know, give them a heads up to that. Okay. This is what it's going to be talking about. And it might be triggering and, you know, feel free to call people in when you hear something and we want to have that transparency between all of us. Yeah. I, I think what's interesting to me about this document is one, yeah, the focus on accountability and, and the focus on calling people in also though, there's, kind of some interesting things that like you don't normally think of when you're like outlining norms like you're talking about like we want to be playful here uh or like joking around is okay but also kind of again like recognizing the bounds of what that is what is responsible playfulness and stuff like that you know being real being honest with what you're saying recognizing your own reactions to things which is i will say if i'm being honest one of the hardest lessons i've learned and i work <laughs> Yeah, this is like such a good thing to say that I haven't ever seen anyone say out loud in a statement of norms. And I think that's really interesting. And I guess all of this all ties back into accountability. Uh, so maybe could you talk a little bit more about what ARC means when they say accountability and, and what they mean when they say calling in? Because I guess calling in is kind of the initiating of the process, maybe, of accountability. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, so when... For accountability, um, for instance, like when somebody is called in, what we really want is for any harm to be named and for the person who has harm to understand that that was harm or that what they were saying was problematic. So right off the bat, just acknowledging that and then doing the steps to take the steps to, to repair that harm. So the next steps would be apologizing and then whatever the person who is harmed feels necessary, um, having that person take the steps, um, whether that be, that could also mean that maybe this person needs to uh, step away for a while from the space until that person feels ready, the person who was harmed feels okay with them being back in the space. Or um, sometimes what's happened is someone will be harmed in a space and then um, they'll think it's, they'll say, okay, well, it's okay for this person to enter back into the space again. And then the rest of our members will be like, well, I still felt harmed by that statement, even though the person who was directly harmed felt okay with it after a while. Um, it's still, we need a group accountability. 
So maybe that will require an apology from that person to everybody and an acknowledgement to everybody that they've done harm. So it's really, really like group-based, really community-based. It's definitely like when one person's harmed, we're all harmed sort of thing. And so with that, we like transparency too, because yeah, I you never know when just because the harmed person says, okay, it's fine. You know, a lot of people could be harboring their own feelings. So we always like to make sure that we see it through to the end with everything that, that all the harm that is caused. Yeah, no, I think this is something that's really interesting to me about this sort of restorative justice approach and this sort of um, accountability approach and call-in approach, which is this kind of attention to feelings, which I feel like at least like is something that gets often left out in discussions, you know, especially in social spaces, which are typically dominated by white dudes, white men who take up a lot of space and do a lot of talking and also repeat a lot of other people's points for whatever reason, right? And so I, I think what's interesting about this group thing is that it 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 makes it like let like one, I guess talking about the feelings is important. I guess that's where I was. Talking about feelings is important, you know, I think as a feminist practice. So like it kind of like strips away some of the like the masculinist attitudes that people have. If you have to like take a little bit of time, take a breather to look inside, like it really changes your perspective because you can be like, oh, I'm feeling sad or angry. And instead of just like barreling ahead, you can like think about it. But what's also interesting is in your emphasizing the group nature of this thing, of this process, is one, it depersonalizes it. It like makes it something that everyone has to confront. And maybe some people didn't feel bad about what the other person said, but it also makes them question, why does everyone else feel bad about it or shitty about it? And why did I feel totally fine? Like there's, by like making it this group exercise and thinking through, you know, the harm and kind of confronting it in like a very direct way is, is, you know, amazing and extremely difficult work. And I guess we've talked a lot about the internal life of, of ARC and sort of like the structural stuff and how you guys approach organizing. I'd be more interested to know what, what kind of work do you all do? You've alluded to political education and mutual aid and, and restorative justice stuff. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think one of the biggest things that we've been working on um, and we're probably going to keep working on it for a while now is uh, a lot of just working on like campaigns right now for the local elections going on because we have a few uh, BIPOC comrades within DSA that are running for local office. So we definitely ARC mobilizes and we show up in numbers for canvassing, volunteering events, just any kind of thing that we can do for those campaigns. That's probably the biggest thing that we're constantly working on. There's three different candidates right now, um, all abolitionists running. So we're definitely been helping out um, in those campaigns. And then uh, just, yeah, with political education, like we're trying to uh, implement some teach-ins for the rest of the chapter because just talk, talking back about the circling back to the uh, Black Reparations Fund and the whole debate that happened with that, we just saw a clear need for education on class reductionism and reparations in general. So we want, we're creating some curriculum and teaching materials so that we can have these for just chapter wide for now and then maybe more into the community once they take off. But yeah, just spreading that. And then uh, one of the things that I'm working on right now 
uh, for doing a teach-in for restorative and transformative justice. One thing that we noticed when we were doing this work was that we're not professionals at this and we can read all we want um, about all of the all of the material that's out there. But we thought, you know, it would be better to have an actual restorative justice uh, facilitator. So um, I've been working on trying to get one for DSA um, and to host a teaching and all of that because, I mean, all of us are abolitionists and I think people want to learn. And so, yeah, just doing a teaching for that. And then, yeah, that's kind of what we're doing on the outward facing of things. You brought up abolition a lot. And I think oftentimes it gets kind of separated. Uh, I mean, implicitly, there is like abolition is tied to restorative justice and transformative justice. But oftentimes it gets isolated and it's just talked about in the abstract of, you know, we want to abolish the police or we want to abolish prisons without really talking about what it means uh, to replace it. What, what does justice look like if it's not punitive? If it's, if it's not about punishing people. And Megan, what do you think is the connection between abolition? I mean, maybe first we ought to define what you all mean when you say abolition. So, so what is abolition? And then maybe we could have a conversation about how that connects to this idea of restorative justice that ARC and, and AFRASOC in Seattle are trying to work through and develop you know, the theory of it through through their own practices. Sure. So I, I will just, I guess I will say what uh, abolition means to me uh, as a black queer femme, um, just navigating in a world where justice is a lot of the times immaterial, it's distant, it's abstract, it's not, it's not tangible, it's not real, it doesn't actually get to the source of the wrongs. Um, and so punitive justice is something that we all know familiar, we're all familiar with, and really has been expounded upon greatly in terms of, in my opinion, what I consider to be capitalists using race in order to weaponize blackness and weaponize brown people. And so just punitive ideas of bringing about justice, there's it's, it's inherently racialized, first, first of all, and it doesn't solve our problems. I know we've kind of like ice skated around the issue, but there was serious backlash against the Black Reparations Fund in, in, in Seattle DSA. A lot of tension, a lot of feelings, a lot of trauma that ha- being activated. And so we're all sitting with these feelings. And I guess what I'm trying to articulate is we often, let me, the opposite of punitive justice is care. Like, we live in a male chauvinist society um, that thinks that if it whips it out of you and whips it out of you and punish you until you can act accordingly. And that is, if that's a form of domination. And I'm not interested, I'm not in the business of domination, and I'm sure all of us are, as socialists, are in the interest of transforming the ways we hold people accountable. And so transformative justice creates an opportunity to reserve judgment and to allow the person to change, um, which is like person, people's things, um, allowing for that space for possibility. I feel like we live in a society where recovery and, and possibility, am I, am I speaking abstractly? No, I think this is really okay. interesting. Um, Go thank for you. it. Um, yeah, basically, we need to hold people accountable. Granted, we don't have the tools. We live in a society where we don't work on our emotional intelligence skills. We don't know how to interact with people. We don't know how to be in conflict with people. And I feel like that's a very important thing in spaces like DSA, where it is 
uh, a big tent organization with people who have all sorts of different ideological differences. And it, we're operating in these ideological differences in this society where so many people harbor so much pain and trauma from just by virtue of living in it, we are bound to hurt each other. Um, and so if we are gonna be socialists, then we need to do what capitalists don't, which is to invest in care. And Luke, that's why I really appreciated when you talked about restorative justice and feelings as, you know, it's a feminist approach. A feminist approach. Um, and so I guess that's what it means to me. Yeah, Jade, what do you think? Do you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, exactly what Megan said. It is it is moving away from the carceral state that is and also moving away from white supremacy. Um, that's like one of the ways that RJTJ, for short, shows up in ARC is just trying to get rid of just the white supremacy that shows up in our th- ways of thinking. And, you know, it's, it's a lifelong thing. Um, a lot of people talk about like an abolitionist horizon because it is a horizon because who knows if it's going to be within our lifetimes that we see full abolition or full, you know, communism or full, all of these radical things. Um, so it is a horizon and that's just something that's, it's hard. It is hard like talking about, cause you have to use your feelings a lot of times to try to find alternatives. I mean, especially people who have been harmed, it's hard to not go towards a punitive measure to try to feel like you were like try to feel like you know you're satisfied with the outcome of whoever harmed you and stuff so yeah it's definitely a work in progress like lifelong yeah and i i I like what both of you said but something megan said really stood out to me which was this kind of possibility that restorative and transformative justice opens up like as you know, if you think about it, like this sort of, I'm going to put in call in, call out sort of framework here, and hopefully I'm using it correctly, but calling out people is in, in a lot of ways replicating sort of bourgeois justice. It says there are specific rules and bounds that exist, and if you violate them, you're punished. There's no opportunity, I guess there is opportunity to change after you're punished, but there's no process of of change it's also like monodirectional like like i guess this is kind of what domination is it's defined externally and it's imposed on someone and that's also you know i think something that socialists ought to avoid you know and and you're totally right also about i, I don't know the, the possibility and the open-endedness of, of restorative and transformative justice and like to me it's like a very marxist way of approaching things like Marx is a dialectician. He's a materialist. He understands that everything that has happened was necessary for now. If it if it happened, then it had to happen because it happened. You know, not to be like fatalistic. Obviously, there's infinite possibilities. We can make so many different choices and we can we can choose to restructure things however we want if we have the will and the capacity to, right? So so I think this is also like a really powerful sort of revolutionary Marxist perspective, honestly, this restorative transformative justice, because it recognizes the possibility for an alternative and actively tries to build that alternative in a collective manner. So I want to keep keep going here with this restorative justice and accountability and, and calling in approach. So this was kind of this arc was born out of this conflict 
over the the reparations resolution in Seattle or the reparations bill, and so it was it was formed in response, and in in hopes that it it would be able to kind of influence and change the approach to internal dialogue and, and discipline, for for lack of a better word, or like comradely interaction and expectations of people in inside of uh, Seattle DSA while also kind of aiding in external efforts to support anti-racist campaigns. So what are some of the challenges that ARC and AfroSoc have encountered in, in trying to implement a restorative justice and, and transformative justice and abolitionist and all of the other ists that we've been talking about here? What are the challenges that, that you've encountered? Well, the biggest thing that I've seen just with RJTJ is, which which is hard, is that you can't force somebody to want to engage. You can't force them to want to repair the harm that they've caused. And that's just the hardest part right there. People will, or you can't force them to do the work to do the repair because, you know, sometimes people will admit to their faults and apologize, but then they don't want to do anything more. Sometimes the things that uh, occur, um, the harm that is caused, we want people to, okay, let's read read some of this passage from Beyond Survival or read some of this from Nonviolent Communication or there's just some things, extra steps that they have to take and some people just become disengaged and they don't want to do it. They think that our apology is enough. Yeah, that's just been the hardest part. And then also people not wanting to make it a group thing just talking earlier about how we want to make it not as personalized. Some people just want to keep it within whoever was harmed and then the person who was doing the harm. Um, and they don't want to get people involved, even though this is a practice that all of us need to go through. Um, so that's another hard thing to try to convince. And that's another, you know, trying to convince somebody to do something that they don't want to engage in. And or yeah, or even just the basic admittance of harm too. It's people don't want to admit that. So that's, definitely the challenges that I've seen. Yeah, Jade, I, I echo all of that. I think the hardest part for me is um, accepting when the, the, the call in or just the, the, hold, the act of holding someone accountable um, leads to a system shutdown. You know, it's like, you know, where do we go from here? Like, how do we, because the RJTJ model really is all about acceptance accepting that we're all inherently flawed to begin with um, and accepting that we have the capacity to grow but also accepting that sometimes that just does not happen um, and being okay with that and like how do we move the group how do we grieve together how do we grieve what was you know because you know those sorts of um, processes can cause a lot of people to kind of you know fall out of interest and so um, that has an impact on the group and it's like how do we move past this what are the steps that we need to take in order to um, ensure that the, the the morale in the space is well um, as well no I, I, I think I think that's really interesting this kind of grieving process yeah you had a comrade who who made a mistake and it's painful to watch them struggle to like overcome that mistake and continue to be part of the collective in a healthy way that and it's you know something that everyone wants i think generally speaking so how 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 do you move on when when you run into these sorts of walls what what do you do in these instances because 
it's bound to happen. I mean, transparency amongst all our members. If we have a member that hasn't that uh, that our members know something has happened, like they know that they've caused harm or been harmed or whatever, and they haven't been showing up to meetings or something, we're gonna be transparent because at least for the co-chairs, it is kind of our duty to reach out to these people too if they're not coming again or whatever and so just giving an update and being transparent with everybody about these are the steps that have been taken or these are our next steps or you know just letting them know where in the process this person is because yeah we don't want people to become disengaged and we don't want to put our whole operation on hold if you know somebody's not coming to meetings or um or stuff like that and we want to we sometimes do address these things too as a group just to talk about how we can prevent this. I mean, we're, that's why we're also constantly editing our like values and norms and our living document because it's stuff like this that is just like, this is RJTJ in, pra- in practice. So we're constantly trying to make bylaws and norms that we can, we know are, is going to work or it's worked here or it's was failed there, we'll delete that. Um, so yeah, just being transparent and then just trying to shift our group dynamic so that we can prevent stuff from happening in the future. I think this, you've emphasized this throughout the conversation. I don't know why I haven't picked up on this emphasis yet, but I guess transparency is one of these things. And and we can talk about that in a little bit, but this idea that your sort of governing documents or, or the basis of your agreement within this caucus, these values and norms and expectations and this pledge that people are taking commit to this work is a living document and i think it also speaks to sort of uh i'll use a ten dollar word here uh epistemological outlook that you have to have if you're invested in restorative justice and and transformative justice you know this it it's not about an obsession of being correct or determining who is correct it's important to kind of evaluate things but the the real important thing here is the recognition that yeah, our knowledge is limited. And our goal here is to uncover the truth. And, and the process of uncovering and discovery it is what's really important. And I think that's that's what I've seen, like when I've talked to like the Casey Tennant's people, uh, kind of about the similar sort of feminist process stuff that, they, that they've implemented about also kind of emphasizing that feelings matter, you know, and that and that talking about them openly and in a transparent way is important. And I think this kind of goes back to, like, why is this important? And, and this kind of recognition that, you know, there is this epistemological difference, this difference in how you approach truth is, well, you know, if you're not talking about feelings, you're not revealing a whole lot of information. Like, this is like a massive part of the self. Intellect is one thing. The physical body is another. But, like, this sort of how you feel in the world about other people and about yourself is, like, huge because yeah i don't know with that i think you know we've, we've talked about what you've been doing and, and the challenges you face and the sort of obstacles that that come in the process of trying to implement rjtj i'll use the acronym uh in in your dsa chapter and and it sounds like it's going to be a long-term process i mean any any revolutionary project is but i think in the spirit of talking about like uncovering truth you know i i think might be important to talk about, like, what are some of the big lessons that you've learned in, in the process of trying to do this work? Um, well, for me, or did you want to go, Megan, or you can go ahead. 
Polly has something better to say. Oh, I I was well. I was just gonna say, um, being a facilitator in that space is wild. As a person who has feelings and a person who is also part of the internal dynamics of the space, and learning how to read the room and being like we just actually had a change of language and it seems it seems so minute on the surface changing it from Afrosoft co-chair to an Afrosoft facilitator, but that's really what it is about. It's like you know, looking at your comrades as autonomous humans who have their whole world of complexity, who have are dealing with the same challenge and may have their own interpretation, their own um, response to that, and just um, just being in the um, business of reading the room and just allowing the community to decide for itself. Uh, I think that there's this uh, this uh, tendency as leaders to be like. I know exactly what we're going to do, I'm going to do the thing, and this is how we're going to get through this. And so RJTJ, I feel like, breaks that down as well. Yeah, for me, um, some things that I've learned is that people really want to build community, and they really do want to talk about their emotions and like get into the nitty-gritty about things, especially in ARC. And that's so valuable, and um, we always try to use that and we're trying to, you know, have a consensus model for everything now and just make sure that everyone's feeling good and feeling right about something before we implement it. And yeah, I mean, I've learned a lot about myself. Like, I mean, I definitely still think about punitive ways of, of getting my justice all the, all the time. And it's because, yeah, my emotions come into play and like, but that's the thing. It just makes me like sit with them and think about it and be patient yeah, like just what I was saying earlier, some people just don't want to engage in that. And then it's like, well, you have to look out for yourself and your community in that case, if, if, if it's worth it to even continue trying to build something, trying to re-enter this person back into the space or whatever. Um, and then just being mindful about the language that I use. One thing that we've been trying to implement a little bit in ARC. We're still pretty new at it, but nonviolent communication because there's just, and, and using I statements, you know, trying to get away from blame and extremities of language. But yeah, just, just constantly thinking about that when being a facilitator in this, in a group, like, cause yeah, but, but they all know that I'm still learning too. So it's, it's, we're all in this together. This is new to me. I don't know this term nonviolent communication. What what does that mean? Uh, so basically, uh, it is a form of communication where it does get rid of extremities. So instead, instead of saying like, everyone here isn't doing work or something like that, then you would say, I don't see a lot of work being done or something like that. Like you just try to take it away from blaming instead saying like how you feel about the situation like I said I'm still new about it and I'm currently reading a book about it but that's really it was really helpful just uh with RJTJ stuff to think about that because I never really realized how much that affects people because any criticism that people have on ARC when they say oh ARC isn't doing stuff or whatever like it's hard to not take that personally and stuff instead something to say was that oh I haven't seen specifically this from ARC or I haven't seen ARC done this therefore it gives you like sort of an actual like specific criticism of like oh okay we need we ha you haven't seen us do I don't know mutual aid stuff 
specifically, then that's something that we can take and actually work for instead of saying, oh, ARC isn't doing crap. Like, I don't know. So it's just moving away from these like extreme yet broad ways of saying things and, and trying to center it so that it's not as blamey. Yeah, no. And it, it makes a lot of sense to me now what you're saying here. Like I can kind of think about like the violence part of it. Like it's not like a, obviously not a physical violence and obviously you can like cuss someone out and that can be like a type of violence. But this kind of, yeah, like saying I don't see or like not say, I don't see that's that's the nonviolent way that the saying no one is doing work here is like that just cuts off the conversation like you've seized any possibility for a back and forth about the topic to be had right because you said no nothing is happening and what are you supposed to say no uh is like the only response right and this kind of i like this i see sort of language it kind of goes back to this like whole thing that we've been talking about through much of this conversation which is like it's about discovery and like when you say i don't see it you're giving the opportunity for like so much to be revealed and i think that is such an amazing principle that i'm like blown away that i'm learning so much from you guys not not surprised that i'm learning so much but just blown away that i was like <laughs> by these I, these concepts so thanks so much for sharing them you know i i think we're, we're getting close to the end of of the hour here and i would i'd like to kind of bring us in for a bit of a landing um one you know i i think a good way to in this would might be just to to give some advice to people i know lots of people in in my dsa chapter i know lots of people in other uh socialist uh organizations i I participate in are are interested in and want to do this sort of work but don't know where to start what is your advice for starting the work of one confronting white supremacy in your own organization but two like transforming it and implementing a a restorative and transformative justice sort of model? Um, I mean... Big question, I know. I mean, I think just just know that there's not a set outcome. You know, doing... If you're going to make a caucus for anti-racist... Anti-racism, it is going to be just a lifelong thing. It's not like, I don't know, making a Medicare for All caucus where you can have little goals of making you know certain things pass and whatnot and agitating certain people and to get stuff like that like that's not what anti-racist co-conspirators do it's definitely working co-intangent with BIPOC people and having the patience and also just being open to criticism because a lot of white folks especially too will they just see this as like a mountain of problems to tackle when it comes to racism and it's you know, it's, it's kind of discouraging a little bit in a little bit because, you know, there's just so much to do. Um, and then you're also going to get a lot of criticism too from BIPOC people and just take that criticism and take it and don't get offended by it. And, you know, RJTJ is something to really implement and throughout all of it or, or else I don't think, I don't think we could ever do this caucus if it weren't for those practices, because it's just so, it just gets so raw sometimes um, and really emotional that the only way to contain it is if we can all hold each other and really just build a community. I think a lot of the members that we have now, like we all like know each other now. We all we have emotional sessions and times and like it's like if we didn't build that kind of community, I don't think that this could have we could have gotten this far. So just be in store for 
more than just organizing work, but like actually building a community that that you can rely on and be open about and emotional and just be your full self in. But yeah, that's kind of some takeaways that I would say if you plan on making an art caucus. What, what do you what do you have to add? Maybe? Yeah, I guess mine is um, my advice is a little less tangible as I am transitioning away from my co-chair responsibilities and into school. But I think uh, being okay with destruction, I think, is the key to abolition because there's always this fear of like, well, if we get rid of this, then what are we gonna have? Um, and being uh, being okay with like, you know, taking the destruction and that openness, and that, that could be prisons, but even just in our groups, right? There's a tension that needs to be broken down, that needs to be opened up. And, you know, that's an uncomfortable space, but like really practicing um, with your comrades, just practicing being uncomfortable together, but in with the end goal of coming out with something. And, you know, that's a really hard place to be. And sometimes those solutions don't come and that's okay. Um, and, you know, Adrienne Marie Brown said something. It was a really great quote. Um, and it was like, not everyone has to already be liberated, but everyone should be on a liberation path. And so um, with that in mind, it's just a matter of how many, you know, it's a series, you know, of, of moments. It's never going to be, you know, that's why call out culture fails is because it doesn't open things up. It shut things down. And so um, whenever it, it's taught me a lot about conflict and being okay with conflict and being okay with things not being resolved sometimes with the hopes that it will be I, this yeah it's this emphasis on conflict and like i guess destruction is is kind of interesting to me because it kind of again like like as socialists many of us are marxists it kind of like is this like super marxist point that you're saying without any marxist language which is like yeah there's gonna be like contradictions that come up and guess what to resolve them you have to eliminate the structures that exist that create these contradictions like as socialists we want a society without class that means we're going to have to abolish the working class like it can't exist if we have a socialist society and i think i think you know that's a big abstract thing to think but i think it's also important to like think about it here like within our own groups which is there are reasons that there's conflicts and to resolve those conflicts we have to get rid of those reasons that form the basis for them and as both of you, Jade and Megan, have made clear that requires a massive amount of trust and a massive amount of openness to, to all sorts of possibilities and, and outcomes. So before we go, I just want to say, do you guys have anything that you want to share? Social media? Is there a way we can follow ARC or AfroSoc? If not, it's fine. There is an AfroSoc Twitter. <laughs> oh, Jade, you disappeared for a sec. What were you going to say? Uh, there, there is, is what? Sorry, I know I, my internet went bad. There is an Afrosoft Twitter. Um, I believe it's just Seattle. Or do you have it? Seattle Afrosoft? Okay, yeah. But but ARC has yet to come. We, we might have uh, social media soon, but that's in the works. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, let me know if ARC gets some social media. Thanks for sharing Seattle Afrosoft social media. I think everyone should go ahead and give them a follow because... Sounds like they're doing some really, really interesting work. And with that, I just want to say thank you so much. You both were amazing guests. I hope to have you guys on again sometime in the future to kind of follow up and see, you know, what the outcome of all this work has been. 
or what what your trajectory is or what new horizons you've you've brought out so thank you so much again and i, I just learned a ton and i i thank all of our guests uh yeah thank you too. thank you for having me this has been fun never done this before so yeah this is great so you can now access our podcast socialism from below through most podcasting apps if you're using itunes and even if you don't use itunes please be sure to give us a review uh and a rating the more people who review and rate it and give us five stars and a glowing review the higher we go up in the algorithm and the more people will see this show if you like the conversation that we had and you want to keep up with what socialism from below is doing you can follow us on twitter at at soc from below if you like what you heard on today's episode and you want to find out more about solidarity check out our website www.solidarity-us.org you can find solidarity on twitter at solidarity us on instagram at at solidarity 1986 and on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash SolidarityUS. I'd also encourage you to check out our comrades at the Socialist Journal Against the Current. You can find them on their website at www.againstthecurrent.org. All one word, no spaces, no underscores. You can also find them on Twitter at ATC underscore mag and Instagram at ATC.mag. I'd also encourage you to subscribe to their Uh, magazine. It's really cool and it has uh, a lot of great articles. Um, Thanks again to our producer James for all the work he does. He really makes this podcast go. I could have a million conversations and if he didn't make it sound so great uh, they would never be published because I can't do any of the work he does. Also if you like the theme song James has a beat tape, Boptimism of the Will. You can find it on the big platforms. You know, If you wanted to donate some money uh, and pay for the tracks uh, it goes to Casey Tenets. Uh, so, thanks again. Until next time, solidarity forever.